Joke of the day. This is an extended quote from George Carlin, and you would say, that's not even a joke. Just, just, I love this. Just absorb it anyway, okay? People say, I'm going to sleep now, as if it were nothing, but really it's a bizarre activity. For the next several hours while the sun is gone, I'm going to become unconscious, temporarily losing command over everything I know and understand. When the sun returns, I will resume normal life. If you didn't know what sleep was and you had only seen it in a science fiction movie, you would think it was weird and you would tell all your friends about the strange movie that you'd seen. They had these people, you know, and they would walk around all day and they would be okay. And then all of a sudden, once a day, usually after dark, they were going to lie down on these special platforms and become unconscious. And they stopped functioning almost completely, except deep in their minds, they would have adventures and experiences that were completely impossible in real life. And as they lay there, completely vulnerable to their enemies, their, <laughs> I love that line, their only movements were to occasionally shift from one position to another, or if the mind adventures were too real. They would sit up and scream and be glad they weren't unconscious anymore. And then they would drink a lot of coffee. So next time you see someone sleeping, make believe you're watching a science fiction movie and just whisper, the creature is regenerating itself. There, joke of the day. George Carlin. You ever notice that on the playground, this is not a joke, it just actually sounds like a joke. It's not, it's the actual sermon now. Do you ever notice on the playground that when kids get in each other's business, they, they sometimes say, well, my dad, what is it? Can beat up your dad. <laughs> no, am I the only one who's? <laughs> it's like, I might not be able to beat you up or your group up, but my dad can, so there. Or basketball players, like I heard Van Gundy's a coach. There was, there was a sequence back in the day when he was still a coach and not a commentator where some player from the opposing team who was massive did a hard foul on one of his guys, and he rushes out there like he's going to fight him. I'm going to kill you. And his players jump out and stop him. Later, I heard him say, oh, I'm so glad my players were there to stop me so I could pretend to to be tough enough to take on that huge seven-foot, 280-pound muscle. It's like, Thank God my players were there so I could act tough because we all knew how that fight was going to go. Or Goliath's friends. How do you imagine Goliath's friends felt as they walked through town? Do you think they were just a little tougher when he was there than when he wasn't? <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. I'll take that soda and drink it. You can, I'm not going to pay. You can't make me do anything I don't want to do. That's right. That's right. Take it up with Goliath. You're like, how is this a sermon? This is weird. Yeah, I know. I know it is. So here's the text. Colossians 2.10, And you have come to fullness in him who is the head of every ruler and authority. Last time we talked about thanksgiving and gratitude, but the time before that, we talked about this word fullness and how the Colossians had this worldview where 
down here is the first heaven where the birds fly. Then in the second heaven, there's angelic powers and principalities. And where we want to get to is the place where God dwells, the third heaven. But how are we going to get there? we got to navigate through the spiritual challenges that, that, that face us. And they had the idea that they needed to make themselves pure. They had to know the special keys and codes. You could say they were guilty of angel worship, or you could say that they were guilty of fearing the demonic. Back in the day when I grew up, the Christians were probably more demonic than the so-called kids listening to the devil music. Here's what I mean. Christians experienced more fear regarding rock and roll and backwards secret messages in it than the kids who were just enjoying the music. There was more reverence on the part of the Christian mom for the evil than the kids supposedly being led astray by it. Now, maybe he was. I don't know his heart. Jesus does. But do you catch what I'm saying? There's two ways you can reverence something. You can go after it and say, aren't you great and mighty? Or you can just greatly fear it so that your life is lived with reference to avoiding its influence to an inordinate degree so that it still defines you and models and molds and shapes you. Am I making sense? One nod. Okay. I'll take it. (laughs) So the last time that I preached on Colossians... It was to talk about how this fullness, this this place where they had full access to God, which they imagined was on, on the other side of all these obstacles and challenges that were threatening to take over their hearts and lives that they had to somehow navigate through. And later we'll see that the way that they decided to try to get through it was add more rules to their life, more discipline, more no nos, more to do lists, more praying and fasting and memorization and avoiding this, that, and the other because the world is big, bad, and scary and it will infect you and it will affect you and you have to get painted into a corner to wear rules and you wake up in the morning feeling guilty because you haven't prayed enough yet and you haven't read your Bible enough yet and you wake up in the morning feeling like there's a long list of things to do if you are to get through this day without having sinned grievously. And that whole thing sounds sincere. We'll get to that later in Colossians 2 in a different sermon where he, Paul says, all these harsh rules and this diligent, religious, intentionally committed thing, it sounds like it's committed to Jesus. It sounds good. It sounds like it's going to change your life and get you out of these sin problems that you want to get free of. But it actually has zero power at changing your heart. Zero power in fighting sin. Zero power in bringing you further along in your real spiritual life. It actually takes you backward in the name of moving forward. And so these Colossians... Paul says, y'all, hey, the fullness you're seeking, you already have it in Jesus. And then this verse comes along and says, you have come to fullness in him who is the head of every ruler and authority. In Greek, it reads more like this. And you are in him brought to fullness who is the head of all rule and authority. And you are in him passively grabbed hold of you and brought you to fullness. You didn't make yourself full. It's because you're in Jesus, you've been brought to fullness. And he, the one you're in, is the head over all these demonic powers and principalities that rule the world that once owned your and my life 
and that we're tempted to be very afraid of and live our lives with reference to, even though they once lorded it over us, now we fear them lording it over us again. And so in, in response, then we build this religious life. And Paul's frustrated. He's like, guys, what are you doing? What are you doing? Don't, don't you know who he is? Don't you know who Jesus is? Don't you know who Jesus is with reference to the demonic powers and principalities? And don't you know what you have in him? All right, there you go. That's the whole sermon. So here's five questions on this very simple verse. Number one, what does it mean that Jesus is the head? Number two, who are these rulers and authorities? Number three, what is their relationship to Jesus? Number four, what are the Colossians' relationship to these demonic rulers and authorities now that they're in Jesus? And number five, what's the course correction Paul wants them to take? You're trying to write that down? Okay, I will email my notes to the whole church, and the podcast is always put up usually in the afternoon, early afternoon, bedisciples.com, just the links to the podcast always there. So number, question one, what does it mean that Jesus is the head of all rule and authority? Why call Jesus the head of the demonic powers and principalities? That's curious. Don't you think that's weird? I mean, we know from Scripture that Jesus is the head of his body, who is the? The church. That makes sense. But to call him the head of these demonic, that's, that's interesting. What's going on there? This word head in this particular usage is a designation of superior rank. If it's used of a building, the head of a, the head of a building would be the capstone of the building. The head of a river is the origin or source of the river. But when it is used in relationships, it means the superior or highest ranking authority among the relationships. And you go, well, not all relationships are authoritarian, you old lug. And I go, typically they end up that way. You know, even democracy doesn't, isn't pure democracy. Why? Because that ends up with chaos, right? So we had, have elected officials to whom we owe honor and respect and submission unless they violate the commands of God. So every, every, like, every system ends up with a leadership structure. Every system. There is no leaderless system, not biological, not organic, and definitely not social. And you go, well, marriage, in marriage, the husband and wife are equal and they share the load. That's a nice modern concept. But in real life, somebody's wearing the pants. Could be the wife, could be the husband, could be a wonderful partnership where they are very much sharing the load, but I guarantee you somebody is bearing just a little more load. I've never seen 50-50. I've hardly seen 49-51. I've usually seen 70-30, and in most modern marriages, it's the woman. And you go, well, that's not biblical. And I go, I'm not saying it's biblical. The husband is obligated to carry the heavier load. See, when we hear authority, we often think, calls the shots, sits on his button, gives commands. Not, not in Jesus. Jesus is the, says the greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all. 
and he lays his life down to serve us. He washes his disciples' feet. After the resurrection, he feeds them fish, which he's cooking over. He's in a glorified body cooking fish. So if you thought humility and servanthood was a temporary thing having to do with him being a human, you're wrong. It's a permanent part of his loving and wonderful nature because God is the greatest servant of all and is the highest authority there is. That was a side trail just to say, scripturally speaking, the husband is the head of the wife. Doesn't mean he bosses her around, but it does mean he's supposed to take a larger share of responsibility. So if she's all up at night worrying about everything and everything's her job, something's gone wrong. But that is the plight of the sin issue is the husband's become passive and in fear, women then take over and take on too much burden. That's how sin, I'm, boy, I'm meddling today. What am, what am I doing? Let's get back on track. Kephale, the Greek word for head. In this context, saying that Jesus is the head of all rule and authority is not saying he's just the source, like the source of a river. It's not saying he's just the highest as in a building. It is talking about him having the highest position or rank of authority. Let me, here's another way. To, it's another way of saying the fallen angelic demonic hosts had been originally given authority over the earth because humans had originally been given authority over the earth. Who's tracking with me? Genesis 1 and 2, God created everything. Then he created humans, man and woman, in his image, God created them, which means you have to have man and woman together to express God's image correctly. Fascinating. Man and woman, he created them. And then he set Adam and Eve over the creation and gave them what? Dominion. Now it says in Hebrews that the angels are servants. They're ministering spirits sent to serve those who are to inherit salvation. So rightfully, here's how God set it up, rightfully, the whole creation is under his authority. He's the head. And under his headship, we have a delegated authority. And the angels, who are far more powerful than us, are meant to serve us in our task. But those who rebelled are misusing their positions of authority. And instead of helping us and serving us, they are twisting things around. They still exist. The powers and principalities, the rulers and authorities, the demonic rulers and authorities, they still exist, but they're abusing their power and turning us into pawns, unknowing slaves who do their bidding. It's a secret maneuvering. It's a, it's a secret manipulation or marionetting. We don't know it until we get free from it. Does that make sense? I didn't know it until I got free from it. But what's Jesus' relationship to these marionetting demonic powers? He's Lord over them. So saying that Christ is the head of, the, of all rule and authority is another way of saying that he is king of kings and Lord of lords. Uh, in the Old Testament, they just talked about other gods. You remember that? In the early Old Testament... The idea was all the different nations belong to different gods. In Deuteronomy, God says, all the nations of the world have been appointed to different gods, but I have chosen Israel as my special possession. That's an interesting idea. So in the Old Testament, there's this idea, oh, there are many gods. By the time we get to the book of Isaiah, now we realize there actually are, there's actually only one God with a big G, 
And all these so-called gods of the other nations are little g gods with significantly less power and authority. And then we get to the New Testament and we realize, oh, they're actually fallen angels. Fascinating. Who's tracking with me? Is this too much information in one time? Okay, so when you say Christ is the head of all rule and authority, what it means is he's, he's the big boss. He's the Goliath. He's the big, he's the big brother who's going to beat you up. He's the dad who can beat up your dad. Right? He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Their Lord gets a little L. They are gods, but they're gods with a little G. Or we might call them, and we should, false gods. The God of this age, Paul calls them. Exousia and arche are the two words. Arche literally means uh, first or the beginning, but in regard to what we're talking about here, it just means a ruler or one holding a position of power or dominion. This is me now answering question two, which is what are these two words? And then the second word, exousia, has to do with authority. It's used in a positive sense all over your Bible, like you've been given authority. But here it refers to, uh, it can refer even to governmental authorities, by the way, which have been instituted by God. But in this, in this exact verse in Colossians 2, and then for the rest of the chapter, it refers to these demonic supernatural beings that once were placed in appropriate positions of authority, but now are in rebellion. So the, the arche and exousia are corrupt spiritual powers. We, call, we could call them the powers that be. I'm going to get a little cynical here for a minute, but it's going to be biblical cynical, okay? It's okay to be cynical when it's biblical. <laughs> the system is broken. That's what these phrases mean. The rulers and authorities are demonic. The system is corrupt. It, when, back in the day, we used to talk about sticking it to the man. The man is what... This is what Paul's talking about, the man. And you go, what, what do you mean, human authority? Not quite. Not, not quite. Um, human institutions and human authorities have been established by God, Romans 13, for the common good. I don't know if you've noticed this yet. People are evil. Including you and me are born Selfish. We're not born altruistic, sacrificially good, full of light and love. That's not natural. God can put it in us if we'll surrender to him and allow him to put it in us. And his image can never be erased from us. So we have lots of goodness in us because you can't sin away the image of God. It's not possible. But you can mar it even more. It's like wonderful with a selfish twist would be the human natural condition. We're not evil to the core. Not everything we do is evil, but everything is touched by evil. Everything is bent. So in a fallen world, God preserves order and protects against chaos by instituting authority, human institutions with authority. That's Romans 13. So when you hear Paul here saying the rulers and authorities are, are, the, are sort of the enemies, he's not saying your, your, your government is your enemy. It's not what he's saying. Who's tracking with me? He's saying above those are spiritual powers and principalities. There's a system and 
overall, the whole world is actually being puppeted by this system so that which is intended for good is not so good. It'll be a little more obvious why I'm making that distinction a little bit later, because in modern liberal theology that sort of demythologizes the Bible, do you know what that that would mean? Like if you demythologize the stories about Jesus and the miracles, you would say, oh, well, I have a cell phone and we fly an airplane, so how dumb to still believe in miracles and, and you know, that stuff. So, so we'll, we'll take the moral teachings of Jesus, because that's true, but we're going to leave behind that sort of unscientific, mythical world of miracles and demons, right? That's a modern liberal theological way of reading this stuff. And the way they have interpreted, modern liberal theologians, the way they've interpreted these powers and principalities is to say that uh, your spiritual warfare consists in speaking the truth to power. Have you heard that phrase in the past 10 years? Speaking the truth to power. And they mean any human in a position of authority becomes instantly suspect as being in cahoots with the powers and principalities. There's a, there's a mindset that says as soon as Eric gets a position in church leadership, we're going to trust him a little bit less than before. Because before he was down among us, and now he's in that position because power corrupts. Does power corrupt really? Or does power give you the opportunity to express your corruption? It's like the gun violence question. You know? Yeah, if I'm evil and I want to hit you and stab you and then you hand me a gun, I'll shoot you too. But did the gun make me shoot you? No, I made the gun shoot you. Does power corrupt? I, don't, I don't personally don't think so. I think what it can do is open up a, a box of temptations for, for you to go down some paths where your sin has power to harm more people than it did before. But I digress. We're not supposed to be fighting against human authorities, is my point. But we are supposed to be in rebellion against the demonic system that clouds over this world, you guys. In a a world where the whole system is corrupt, rebellion against the system is virtue. That's what I'm... Your life's supposed to stick it to the man. We are the rebellion against the rebellion. Question three. Oh, maybe I'm not clear. Question one, what does it mean that Jesus is the head? It means he's over them in authority by a long shot. Question two, what, is it, what are the rulers and authorities? They are spiritual, supernatural beings who hold lots of influence over the world, but it's behind the scenes secret influence. Question three, what are these rulers and authorities' relationship to Jesus? I've kind of already answered that. To put it bluntly, James 2.19 says the demons believe and shudder. Or Mark chapter 5 Let me just read you this. Mark chapter 5, 1 through 17. So they arrived at the other side of the lake in the region of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an unclean spirit came out from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the burial caves. Ew. This man lived in the burial caves and could no longer be restrained. 
all right, this is, this is starting to get not fun. Even with a chain. How would they know that? A lot of times. Wherever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrists and smashed the shackles. Y'all, I'm out. I'm done. Someone else's job, I'm moving. This neighborhood has gone to pot. I'm out. Right? I'm out of here. I did not sign up for this. I ain't gonna wrestle this dude again. I would like a milkshake and a nap. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night, he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. Triple nope. Just no. When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. With a shriek, he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. Anyone else getting really happy? Y'all, do you know who you know? Jesus had said to the spirit, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And then Jesus demanded, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion. That's a thousand soldiers, by the way. For there are many of us inside this man. Then the unclean spirits begged him again and again not to send them into the arid places, some distant places, the Greek, I don't know. And there happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby, minding their own business, doing nothing wrong. What were they? That's a bad pig day. One minute you're rooting around, the next minute you're demonized and drowning. Oh, man. Send us into those pigs, the spirits begged. Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. Oh, that's fascinating language, y'all. He gave them permission. Do you know who you know? And the evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs. I'm sure somebody's going to send me a hilarious pun about this, this story. And the entire herd, about 2,000 pigs, plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. Now, I'm not like some expert in demonic stuff, but I doubt one sentient being can simultaneously possess two pigs, which means there's probably at least 2,000 little critters in this man. I'm no expert. I'm just reading this, this, this Bible here. And they drowned in the water. The herdsmen fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. That's got to be a short story. If you're, if you're telling while you're running. I ain't talk, when you talk to me and I'm on the phone, I'm not giving paragraphs of data. It's like one sentence, brief answers. Y'all! <laughs> <You know? laughs> People rushed out to see what had happened. See, sometimes we think like, oh, social media, that's why everybody's all in everyone's business. No, come on. Humans, 
Humans have always been in everyone's business. When I first moved here, I said, if you fart in Greenwood, they smell it in Seaford by afternoon. <laughs> Nothing to do with social media. People talk. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw a man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. Then those who had seen what happened to Orame is the same word. Then those who had seen what happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs. Verse 17, and the crowd began pleading with Jesus to what? Please go. Please just go. I don't know who you are, but I saw what you did. I'm out. I was scared of that guy. Whatever you are has to be worse. I mean, we couldn't handle him at all. You handled him with a look and a word. I'm out. I'm so out. The town has gone way more to pot. Isn't that fascinating? I wish we saw what they see. I mean, without the fear. Some folks don't know Jesus enough to be rightly afraid. And others don't know him well enough to be unafraid. In the song, The Great I Am, we sing these words. We say, and whenever we sing these words, I like feel the room shift. We sing, uh, the mountains shake before him, the demons run and flee. At the mention of the name, King of Majesty. And then we, the band's like, except we need a drummer. For crying out loud, Jesus, help us. We need a drummer. (laughs) There is no power in hell or any who can stand before the power and the presence of the great I am. Great I am. Great I am. And then he goes into the chorus and ah, we all freak out and the roof blows off the joint and the angel's like, yeah. <laughs> but you can feel it every time we say, what are we doing? We're saying this is who he is. This story, this is who my Jesus is. He's a head over the powers and principalities, the rulers and authorities. My brother, my big brother can beat up your big brother. And we kind of walk with, we should walk with just slightly more of a swagger through town. I'm not saying we should steal Pepsis and not pay for them. It's not my point. (laughs) Question four. Since Jesus, so the question three was, what's their relationship to Jesus? Under. Question four, since Jesus is the head over the demonic rulers and authorities, what does Paul then want the Colossians to know about their relationship to the rulers and authorities? You tell me. Stop being intimidated by spiritual evil. Stop letting that which you're afraid of dictate you. Because what you are in love with is so much more powerful than what once held you. And your reverence and fear of that is a form of giving it some kind of veneration. I wouldn't go so far as to say worship. Maybe we could. Way too much. There's a worldview that thinks it's Christian, but it ends up being threatened and painted into a corner of fear. Everything's going to touch me and make me, going to hurt me. Everything's unclean. 
It's going to make me unclean. If I go outside, I'll get skin cancer. I have to eat everything that's made in my own garden because GMOs and, oh, you can just populate the list. And the more research you do, the more you'll find that confirms your thing. And, the, and it's not just food, it's people, it's ideas. You don't know who to trust. But guys, if you're in Jesus, the spirit in you is greater than the spirit in the world and he leads you into all truth and you don't have to fear being deceived. And there's the craziest thing, those early Christians, they weren't even afraid of being killed. And they proved it by speaking and living in such a way that got them killed. Man, do you know how much control you give someone when you allow them to intimidate you? A lot. And I've been there so many times. Allow myself to be intimidated by what you can do to me. And Jesus is like, please don't do that. Do not fear what they can do to you. Don't fear what even the devil can do to you. And then he doesn't say the very nice thing you'd expect him to say. He says, fear the one who instead can throw you in hell, my father. I read a Catholic dude say, no, no, he's talking about the devil. The devil throws you in hell. Nonsense. The devil doesn't have the authority to throw anyone into hell. In fact, he's in hell being tortured at the end. The demons aren't in hell torturing people like the show Supernatural. That's nonsense, fiction. Hell was created to torture the devil and his angels, or I should say as the right place, the fitting place that they have chosen. Sidebar. Let's get back on point. Because I got I to gotta finish this. What were they supposed to course correct? See, whatever the point of reference is that I live my life around, that ends up being my true Lord, no matter what my official beliefs say. Do I have to repeat that? Two yeses and one no. The yeses have it. Whatever is the point of reference around which I live my life, that is my true Lord, no matter what my official beliefs state. Question five. What was the course correction Paul wanted the Colossians to make? What new mindset, what new direction did he want them to take? Well, since Jesus is gloriously Lord, and since demons tremble when he shows up, and since the fullness of God indwells him, and since we have been brought to union with him, and we have been brought to fullness, we're kind of like a man who has a badge and a gun and doesn't know it. We're kind of like a man in a hostage situation who has a badge and a gun and doesn't know it. In the Marvel comic, Jessica Jones, there's this villain called Kilgrave, and he, like has, he can mind control people, make them do whatever he wants just with a, by thinking, putting, in, putting these thoughts in their head. And you go, well, that's a weird power. Oh, it's terrifying. It's like the most terrifying power you could have over someone. And Jessica falls under his spell, and she, for, she has incredible strength. So now Kilgrave is forcing her to, do, to use her incredible strength to hurt people. So she lives with the memory of doing terrible, evil things she hates. And she has nightmares. She honestly feels like she's being raped while she's, it's, it's a non-sexual rape, but it's just, it's, it's, the, it's the driving conflict of the comic. Jessica Jones and Kilgrave. When she finally comes to realize that she actually has even more power than she thought, not just physical, but mental, and she breaks free of his control, then she kills him in a moment of anger. It's like, 
snaps his neck on accident, just hits him. See, this is a huge spo- spoiler alert. I just ruined the whole comic for everyone. But some of you are like, I was never going to read it. I'm fine with that. But as long as Jessica Jones believes Kilgrave is more powerful than her and at any time can simply show up and, 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 and get her, she is riddled with fear. She lives in dread. She lives like a nightmare. But, but he actually knows. He can tell because he's noticed little times in which she didn't do what he wanted her to do. So he already knows the only thing that keeps his grip over her life is for him to deceive her into thinking she has no power. How are we tracking? You see why I'm bringing this up? It's all a lie. Kilgrave's only mastery is to get her to not know what she really has. Even after he's dead and gone, she still has nightmares about being enslaved and him coming back from the dead and bringing her back under under control. Paul wants these Colossians to know that the villains have been defeated and that they've been set free. And he wants them to stop living in fear, in this living nightmare of, I got to keep myself free. I can never go back. It's one thing to be diligent and wise and, and, and put your focus on the right. It's another thing to be just terrorized. And Paul wants these Colossians to realize Kilgrave is gone. The power, the rulers and authorities are dealt with. And now they have freedom. They can have joy. They can, they can be under grace. They can walk in power. They can have gratitude. They can walk in holiness. They can live with laughter. This is Christ-centered, powerful living. No more legalism. No more stupid rules. No more of that whole slavery thing. He wants them to live as free people because they've been set free. So what about us? It's 12.02, so I am going to turn this sucker to 10. And we're going to... 11 quick course corrections for us. How do we then break free of these rulers and authorities? One, number one, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Peter sank... When his eyes were on the wind and the waves and he did the impossible as long as his eyes stayed on Jesus. Stan talked all about it the other week. Number one, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Number two, don't get distracted by diversionary tactics. You are a soldier in a war. You are not a civilian. Don't get distracted by civilian pursuits. You are a soldier in a war. That's number two, don't get distracted by diversionary tactics. Number three, don't get fooled by false reports. There's usually only two Joshua's and Caleb's out of 12. Ten idiots, two Joshua's and Caleb's, even in the church. Ignore them. Take the land God has given you. God is a majority. All by himself. God is a majority. Take the land. So don't get fooled by false reports, number three. Number four, do not shoot the prisoners of war. That goes without saying, right? In some of those uh, modern warfare video games that the kids, you lose points if you shoot the hostages, y'all. It's not good. You fail. Shoot the bad guys. Our battle's not with flesh and blood. That's point four. Don't shoot the POWs. Our battle's not with flesh and blood. We pray things like, when we get this, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
You respond gently. Paul says to Timothy, those who oppose you, you must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them release and deliverance out of the devil who's taken them captive to do his will. Don't shoot the POWs, number four. Number five, don't fight using worldly weapons. Fight using spiritual weapons. Worldly weapons is when you try to manipulate and control people. Spiritual weapons is when you use mercy, kindness, joy, forgiveness, and a gentle word of correction. That's enough said. Don't use worldly weapons. Number six, fight the fight you're in, not the fight that you think someone else around you is in that would be really exciting to be in. You're here. You live here. Figure out. Figure it out. Figure out from God. What fight am I in? And what is Holy Spirit's strategy for me to win in the fight I'm in? Not to fight somebody else's in somewhere else. It's really hard to win if you don't know what fight you're in and you don't know what God's strategy is for you to win. You got to know what it is and come back to it often. This is the fight I'm in. This is the strategy God's revealed. I got to remind myself regularly that I'm winning this fight. Fight the fight you're actually in, number six. Number seven, crucify victim self-talk. Put it to death. Do you know what I mean by victim self-talk? Poor me. A hundred different ways of saying, poor me. Wah. Poor me. Best counseling session I ever had was Fred Antonelli just kicking me in the butt and saying, welcome aboard. That's how it's done. Now get after it. I talked for an hour about everything going wrong, and he goes, that's normal. Now get out there. Wow, that was amazing. What a great talk. Because you know what I was trying to figure out? I must be doing something wrong. It's hard. It's a freaking war. What do you think? You're fine. It's called bullets. They're flying all. Yeah, yeah you got injured. Let's bandage that up, but get your butt out there and let's go. Crucify victim self-talk. Put it to death. Self in self-talk is awake and alive and on the throne. Poor me and how I feel. You know, I wrote a fake worship song back in college where the chorus was, it's all about me and how I feel. It was a fake worship song, y'all. Meant to make fun of us for being selfish. When the going gets tough, there's going to be well-meaning people who come to you and they tell you to do the selfish, weak, loser thing because they want you to be happy. When, do I have to repeat myself? When the going gets tough, there's going to be people who come to you and tell you to do the selfish, weak, loser thing because they just want you to be happy. They're there, sweetheart, you poor thing. And they will validate that loser thinking, that self-pity, the very thing that needs to be crucified if you're going to rise up and do God's will. You just poor, you poor little sweetheart. My slogan in the face of this is to angrily yell, we will not betray Jesus. Don't even talk like that to me. Wow, tell us how you really feel. Point number eight. Get a bigger perspective. I mean, like a way bigger perspective, not just right here, this moment, right here, right now, my small life. Come on, look at like 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 years deep of human civilization and human history. Get a bigger perspective. Read things from other generations that have lived before us. Look at history. Study culture. Think about eternity. This isn't new. The gospel works really, really well in situations worse than this one. 
Get a bigger perspective. That's number eight. Number nine, be an encouragement to others. I'm almost done, guys. I can feel it in the room. Everyone's like, but, but how much more exactly? Be an encouragement to others. If two small things, or I'm sorry, if, if just two people in your life lets you down hardcore, it makes your life feel absolutely terrible. Am I wrong? I lose so much hope when just one or two people that I thought would be there for me just suddenly aren't there for me anymore. Let's reverse that. Think about how powerful then it would be for just one or two people to step into your life. Put their hand on you, look you in the eyes, and speak the truth in love to you. Dude, if one or two people just flaking out can just wreck you, one or two people standing up straight and speaking the truth in love to you can just... So be that person for others. Number nine, be an encouragement to others. Number 10, learn to view limitations and challenges as something to be met as the story of our lives, guys. This is what gives meaning to our lives. Nobody wants to watch a movie where everything goes well and then they die. What a boring story. It would make for a boring life. He was born, he ate some cereal, and then he had a job a little bit, and then he died. It was really nice. Would you watch it again? Nope, never. You want to see someone rise to the challenge. You want to see someone sacrifice themselves for the greater good. You want to see someone rise up and do a hard thing. This is the meaning of our life. In Acts chapter 8, it says a great persecution broke out against the church, and they didn't. It was fascinating what it doesn't say. It doesn't say they sat down and cried and said, oh, remember the good old days in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit was poured back out on us. Oh, those were the good old days. Remember in Acts 3 when John and Peter healed the man and then, oh, everybody loved us. No, you know what it says? They were scattered and everywhere they went, they what? They spoke the word of God and the good news spread. What's up with that, y'all? Number 11, point number 11. Go on offense, not on defense. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Surely I'm with you always, even in the age. Did you get it? I assumed you knew that verse, so I didn't have to enunciate it so clearly. Or Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I will build my church on this rock and the gates of hell shall not withstand it. Wait, whoa, we're talking about gates, y'all. If we're hiding in our fortress and you're coming at our gates with a battling, battling ram, we're on defense. But if the gates of hell will not withstand us, We ain't on defense, y'all. We're on offense. We got the enemy holed up in his hidey hole. We breaking down his doors. Anybody else feel that? Come on. There's a pandemic. People don't want to be at church anymore. People are making dumb decisions. Marriages, blah, blah, blah. Youth and blah, blah, blah. De-churched everything and blah. Oh, culture, no one cares about Christianity. Blah, blah, blah. Holy cow. Sounds like we got a mission field. Go ahead and stand. Um, Lord, I pray that you would just, um, that you would be the, the head of our, our, our hearts and be the head of our souls. And I pray that, um, that you would just influ- influence us in um, the way that you want to. And, and um, let us make the right decisions in every, every aspect of life, whatever it may be, Lord. I pray that you would just, um, 
that you would just pour out your spirit upon every person in this house, and I pray that you would just um, let them have let them have a good week, and I pray that you would just that you would just reign and rule over our hearts, and um, and give us the strength to to, to do what you want us to do, and and um, in Jesus' name, Amen.